All right, everybody, it is time for another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. But before we dive in to our awesome, awesome guest and conversation today, I want to remind you guys of two things. And the first one is that if you go to Crypto101insider.com, you can join our private community. Here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks. We also have uh, Crypto 101 University. Uh, where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy-to-understand way. Uh, and we have a weekly newsletter that goes out and quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to Crypto101Insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, It took 11 months of our lives to write, and we're calling it Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. We walk you through this fascinating world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and it's part history book, it's part instructional guide, and it's going to really show you guys why cryptocurrencies are globally disruptive and how they're going to actually change in real life and in real terms the way that we buy and sell and even live. We include a bunch of how-tos on getting started with your first exchanges. Uh, We give you tips on how to safely buy and sell and store cryptocurrencies, as well as how do we evaluate potentially good cryptocurrencies. And the best part of the book is that we're giving it away for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping and handling. So go to CryptoRevolution.com and pick up your copy today. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. I hope everybody's having just a fantastic morning, noon, or night. Wherever you guys are in the world, you're certainly in the right place because we're joined today by a very special guest, Miss Jennifer Schonberger, the senior reporter at Yahoo Finance. Jennifer, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Bryce, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, we're uh, we're really excited. And, you know, you cover some things that I'm particularly uh, very intrigued by, namely cryptocurrencies. Anybody who's watching the show knows I like to talk about this stuff pretty much day in and day out. But uh, I also like learning about the Federal Reserve, right? The central bank, the puppet masters behind the scene. And these are, you know, kind of topics that you've been writing about extensively for, for how many years now? Oh, God, I don't want to date myself. Over a decade. Over a decade. (laughs) Man, well, that's that's a lot of experience. That's more than most people probably even knew what the Federal Reserve was or cryptocurrencies were, you know? (laughs) So you've got got a fantastic head start. Before we dive into all that stuff, give us a little bit about your background. Let's get acquainted. How did you find yourself uh, being a, a reporter here? Uh, for for the Federal Reserve at Yahoo, as well as, you know, eventually covering cryptocurrencies? So uh, I actually uh, studied finance and international business in school, and I really enjoyed it. But I didn't want to go to Wall Street. I didn't want to spend my life running discounted cash flow analyses. And I always want to be a journalist. So I decided to essentially combine the two and became a financial journalist. Um, and so that's how I've, I've spent my career. 
I have written for Motley Fool, Kiplinger. Uh, I worked for Fox Business Network, and now I'm with Yahoo Finance. And I have covered everything from uh, stocks and fixed income to the Federal Reserve to the intersection of Washington and Wall Street and now crypto. Yeah, and in the the intersection of crypto and Wall Street and the intersection of crypto and, and K Street or you know Washington <laughs> yeah. DC is probably going to be getting pretty interesting here. Absolutely. What what are what are some of those traditional views of cryptocurrency both on the Wall Street side and the the Washington regulatory side? Where where do they stand on this whole thing currently? Yeah, so it's a brand new asset class and I think they understand in Washington that Crypto is here to stay. And while accepting that, they need to understand what are the best rules that we can put in place to protect investors, but still allow innovation. And from Wall Street's perspective, I think they see that there is value to this, but they're sort of waiting on Washington to make sure that they are going to be in compliance with this. So one is sort of waiting on the other. They understand that part of it is speculative and things will eventually go away for parts of it, but that other parts of it are very much here to stay and will be integrated into the future as we go forward. Very, very uh, interesting sort of chicken and the egg problem that I just... Yeah kind of herds, but it sounds like the regulation needs to just get buttoned up before the uh, the trillion dollar asset managers really, really start diving. And although we did see, um, you know, BlackRock and Coinbase coming out with a type of partnership, which allows for institutional investors on their Aladdin platform uh, to, to actually manage their assets side by side, their fixed income products, their stocks, now their crypto. So that seems like it might be the tip of the iceberg there. Yeah, I think that institutions, to your point, do see the value in there. Uh, they are trying to take advantage of these depressed price levels, mm -hmm. right? It's just like with stocks, buy low and sell high. <laughs> so they're seeing the opportunity in crypto here, dipping in a toe. I think to really see a broad institutional adoption, though, you're going to need rules of the road. And once those rules are in place, I think you'll see many more institutional investors getting into the space, and that will tamp down uh, some of the wild volatility that we've seen. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, you know, what, what I'm hearing is that the cat's kind of out of the bag, right? Pandora's box has been open. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. And they already see Wall Street and the regulators kind of in DC, they already see that this has happened. But what is it exactly that has happened? Like, what is cryptocurrencies? Is it just a cross-border sort of payment system? Is it just, you know, something small that they're just going to say, hey, like, okay, you know, we see people want to speculate on interesting assets. We'll, we'll give them a sandbox to do that. Or is this kind of bigger than most people could kind of think? It's bigger than, than payment systems, I think. It's, it's, more, it's more of an underlying technology. And how is that technology applied to the financial space, other sectors of the economy, uh, ticket sales, passports. There's so many untapped areas here where this technology can be applied and improve efficiencies and bring down costs. So right now we're seeing it more as, to your point, sort of a speculative investment space. 
uh, I think as things evolve, we'll see greater applications. And just to underscore that right now, companies are looking at NFTs in particular and examining them just beyond collectibles or financial digital assets. They're looking at NFTs as smart contracts and how can they use these to improve commercial activities using programmable money. Um, And they're also looking at NFTs as bundles of rights. Uh, To drill down even further, real estate firms are looking at NFTs to potentially replace traditional contracts and rent could potentially be collected through NFTs. So there are vast applications here. I would say for the financial services industry in particular, uh, companies are looking at a blockchain technology to settle trades faster to unlock capital and liquidity. So right now it takes up to three days to settle trades. That ties up capital. So if you're settling that instantaneously, then that's faster velocity of money, more capital flowing more freely, more creation of value and liquidity. And, you know, this this sounds pretty familiar. You know, I was a lot younger when the internet first kind of came out. But I remember hearing about, you know, there's lobbyists from the telecoms saying, we can't let people have internet on their phones. We can't let software, you know, proliferate as much as it is. And so there's always incumbents that get disrupted because they do see the power of a technology. Like you said, you know, with, with blockchain, it unlocks the flow and the movement of, of capital. Uh, so that there's more value creation. Um, you know, you could send money instantly anywhere in the world for for virtually no cost, and you know, you could have complex smart transactions and stuff. And but this does sound a lot like when the internet first started out, and uh, people didn't want it to spread. The media companies, maybe even if you know Yahoo, obviously was birthed with the whole internet boom on you know online digital, but. You know, if they were, uh, you know, sort of like this old school newspaper back in the 80s or whatever, they wouldn't want the Internet to start because it would eat their lunch. And I kind of feel like a little bit of uh, what's going on with the the big banks is they they also see this. Um, they don't they don't want, you know, blockchain and Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum to proliferate if it's not under their control yet. Right. Well, I think the, that the, the lynchman there, if it's not under their control, right, that's mm-hmm. the key there. They, I think they know that there is validity here. They're late to the party. And so now it's their job to figure out how do we grab onto this. And so I think some folks in the industry have speculated that the stablecoin regulation proposal that was put forth by the Biden administration Last November, was it um, that the, the the fact that the administration recommended that only banks should be allowed to issue stable coins was sort of the bank's way of trying to corner that that crypto area of the business. Since then, of course, there's been some evolution and you're starting to see banks partner with crypto companies. You mentioned uh, BlackRock and uh, Coinbase's uh, partnership. And I, I think you'll see some more of em- embracement of that, if you will, going forward. Yeah, there, there's definitely lots of uh, pieces of the pie, I guess you could say, for the regulatory bodies to glob on to. And we don't need to go into each and every one of them. But I think one hot button issue that I've you know heard lots of discussion, and we don't need to go too deep into it, but it's uh, it's the proof of work versus proof of stake sort of debate. And a lot of these uh, companies are saying, hey, we can't hold Bitcoin on our balance sheet. We don't want to support it because it uses lots of energy. 
Um, now, Ethereum is kind of transitioning so very soon, within the next couple of weeks here, to proof of stake, where it won't have, you know, all, uh, as you know, as strong of an energy pull, it'll reduce its energy consumption by ninety nine percent. Now, are people in Washington kind of looking at that and saying, "Okay, well, that kind of checks off one of the boxes that we really wanted to to regulate heavily"? I haven't heard. You know, granted, a lot of uh, lawmakers have been on break during the August recess, and they're going to be trickling in this week and next. Uh, I haven't heard too much feedback on the merge that you're referring to with Ethereum and whether that would satiate them. Uh, they obviously have harped on Bitcoin for the amount of energy that it takes up. So to the extent it uses up less energy, uh, I think that they would approve of that. And there are other blockchains like Tezos that use um less energy. Uh, Ethereum is obviously the mo one of the more prominent blockchains. That said, uh, while perhaps proof of stake uses less energy uh, and Ethereum will use less energy, there are some concerns about the security side of things because it will take time to build up the security because with that merge, Ethereum is essentially starting from scratch again. So I think there's a bit of consternation also about the security concerns. Like energy is one, but security is another. So mm. we'll have to watch how this goes forward and how Washington responds. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to to definitely see. And and as you even mentioned just a moment ago, the stablecoin regulation um, is really even getting a lot tighter uh, since we've had the stablecoin quote unquote stablecoin just blow up uh, back in May and June of this year. Um, we had the the anchor protocol and the Terra UST oh, sort yes. of coin fizzle out. Do you think that you know there will be a thriving stablecoin market in the U.S. whereby citizens can get actually you know a yield or some type of fixed income or uh, off of these stablecoins, or is that seriously going to only be restricted uh, to the banks being able to kind of generate that yield on on stablecoins? So to your point, there is stablecoin legislation right now in the House Financial Services Committee that's being sorted through. Uh, there's a sticking point right now on the handling of digital wallets, so it remains to be seen whether that legislation will move forward or not. I think that both there is a political will on both sides to make stablecoins work in this country, to make them safe. And um, the possibility in certain lawmakers' minds that this could be um, an alternative to a central bank digital currency. It's still unclear at this point which path regulations will put stable coins toward because you've seen both Democrats who have come out and said only banks should issue stable coins. If you, and you've seen Republicans say, uh, for instance, uh, the ranking member of the Senate Banking Committee, Senator Toomey, say, well, these money transmitter licenses are enough, but we would just have to have a, a second set of federal rules in addition to that. So it really it depends what happens in terms of the majority in the House this November to see which direction the stablecoin regulation and legislation could go. If the House Financial Services Committee is indeed able to hammer something out in this Congress before January, 
it's probably a greater likelihood that it would be under the purview of banks. If not, maybe we have more wiggle room depending on who's in control. Wow. Very, very, very thorough answer. And I appreciate that insight. And I'm I'm curious, is this something that's similar to what's being proposed, the Fed now system, or would this be maybe two systems running in tandem? So when you're talking about systems, are you referring to stable coins? Or are you referring to CBDC? I will say that. Essentially- yeah, well, like basically, I think the question is, will we have like an opportunity to have stable coins, more of like these private currencies or whatever, and as well running in tandem with um, like a central bank digital currency like the Fed now? So I think it's important to differentiate between a central bank digital currency and FedNow. A CBDC is different from FedNow. FedNow is an instant payment system that the Fed Got is planning to launch sometime between May and July next year. And some say that FedNow would negate the need to create a CBDC because it would offer a lot of the same benefits as a CBDC, namely that it's instantaneous. So, for instance, you know, there were delays in getting Americans emergency relief payments during the pandemic. So FedNow could have distributed those payments instantaneously to Americans. It can help Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, And for, I think, some of the Republicans, it would also it would help with the security issue. Right. Americans don't want the central bank. Um, having such direct access to their finances, potentially, which could happen with a CBDC. So depending on how a CBDC would be designed, I think there are a lot of uh, hurdles we need to get through before everyone would be able to get on board, both lawmakers on the Democratic and Republican side, um, the administration, uh, regulators, and so on and so forth. So that's a more complex issue. Putting that aside, I think those two are different from stable coins, Stable coins, in the view of the Treasury, uh, are more likely to be seen as potential forms of payments than, say, a Bitcoin. Uh, right now, stable coins are used more to settle trades, but I think that regulators really do see the validity in stable coins, which is why they're taking such a lead on proposing regulations for them. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the UFI Video Lock, a smart lock a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recordings. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have. And it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, 
Go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Now, one of the the main value propositions, if you will, of a system like Bitcoin has been that it's, you know, kind of like a clock that's been set, it's been wound up, its inflation schedule is kind of set in stone, if you will, right? There's the halvings every four years. And it, you know, kind of throws the the whole, you know, protocol into like this sort of deflationary sort of uh, mode uh, over the long term. Now, one of the, you know, one of the also other benefits is the fact that you could like settle transactions really quickly with anyone. But I think that inflation start uh, part really got me hooked initially because you could see, okay, well, at the Federal Reserve, you know, they there's just a group of people who, you know, are are the the kind of guys in the the ivory tower. They have all this information. They make the decisions for everyone else. People on the ground don't really know why or what's going on or, or how that affects them. Most people didn't even know that you know money wasn't backed by gold. It was just kind of backed by by debt. And like uh, at the end of the day, I think what what makes Bitcoin so different and so so cool is that very concept, right? And now we have you know uh, inflation kind of you know not completely out of control anymore. It does feel like it is starting to come down. But the Fed got it wrong eventually, or you know initially they said the the interest rates. Uh, didn't need to go up too quickly because inflation was transitory. That was their whole word last year, kind of meaning it's just going to come and pass very quickly. It's transitory. Uh, and then somewhere along the way, around November, December, January uh, of the you know the recent months, then all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, this is going to stick. This is going to be insane. We got to hike interest rates faster than any other time in history. And they did like a complete 180. And so now we're still in this, you know, really, you know, in environment of a very hawkish fed but on the in the same way that they got it wrong back then are they getting it wrong now and are they kind of overreacting and overcorrecting and what's your take here on the whole inflation situation why do they even care about inflation <laughs> that's a loaded question you well, let's get into it jennifer <laughs> <laughs> so i think taking a step back the feds the fed has two goals they need to maintain price stability, inflation, and then they need to make sure people are employed in this country. So on, on the inflation front, you know, the Fed's been behind the curve. And I think they thought it may be transitory, but then they realized it's becoming more sticky. And the reason they're looking to move quickly now is if they don't move quickly, there is a real risk that inflation becomes ingrained in this economy, a la the 1970s. The Fed is really trying to avoid a situation where expectations 
for prices rising cement in Americans' minds. Because once you have mm. that, it's very difficult to pull inflation back. And imagine, like right now, how many Americans are grappling with high uh, food prices, high rents. Uh, housing's started to correct since they're raising rates. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But mm-hmm. prices in general are much higher and much and, and farther expensive. So and we've seen some wages come up, but perhaps not enough to deal with this increase in inflation. And there are other supply factors here that are out of the Fed's control, which we need to note. So, so to answer your question, I don't believe that the Fed is getting it wrong now. I don't believe they're overreacting. They're they're having to move more quickly now in a less measured pace because they were wrong that it was transitory. Got it. So now they're making sure they're really right. And that. And 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 Fed Chair Powell has been very vocal and has invoked uh, former Fed Chair Paul Volcker, who had to break the back of inflation. And people are complaining about mortgage rates at 5%. Well, during Volcker's rule, you know, mortgage rates were as high as, what, 21% or something? So, I mean, mm. let's put this all in perspective here. Uh, and and I think that the Fed is moving, and, and, the, and Fed Chair Powell has signaled that they're, they want to avoid a recession, but if a recession happens, then, you know, that's okay because we really need to get this under control. And I will say historically, in order to get inflation under control, you have had to had, have a recession. Yeah, there's, there's lots of other countries that have had inflation kind of snowball um, and get out of control. But all those countries are kind of like banana republics. Like, has there ever been in at least modern times... Uh, like inflation that's gotten out of control in like a fully developed kind of like first world country? In a first world country, a la the EU or the US? Yeah, something like that, I guess. Uh, not to my knowledge as of as of recent. Yeah. Uh, most of the places would be something like a Venezuela, if you will. Um, Zimbabwe. We certainly, was we certainly, yeah, we certainly don't want to get... To that. <laughs> anywhere close to that anywhere close to that which is why the fed is raising and if you think interest rates are, are going up to you know three four percent you think that's bad like if you had even higher inflation they would have to go up even higher yeah it's interesting like that you that you mentioned you know inflation as a mindset which i think is really key i mean so it's a way most people don't think about it they're just like oh it's just numbers they just keep going up but economics is very much a social science totally i was just going to say prices are only set by people right bidding or offering their services and negotiating it's like if prices just keep snowballing higher and higher and higher everybody's going to be out to get each other like well they're charging me more so i'm going to charge you more and that it's just like this whole shift that you know happens all progressively just because you know people kind of you know naturally are looking out for themselves and so in order to you know get inflation really under control they do have to like overcorrect like really put a lid on this yeah. really quickly i mean um, at some point too like you know consumer spending does respond if prices are high enough 
then you will see the pullback and that will demand destruction. Right, right. So the Fed has power over the demand side of the equation. They don't have power over the supply side. Now, the other part of this inflation story is the supply chain globally and COVID. And uh, so that's why you've also seen the Biden administration try to create incentives uh, or Congress pass legislation to manufacture semiconductors in this country because there's been bottleneck problems in supply chains. And so I think what's happened during COVID and you know, inflation is a byproduct of that really is, do we see a rethinking and repositioning of supply chains around the world to become less globalized and more domestic? And what does that mean for inflation? I think it's an open question. Yeah, it's definitely an open. And plus, you know, we've got, you know, some some war kind of going on and some more war kind of pending. We have like the whole Taiwan situation. Obviously, Ukraine has gotten uh, really out of control. And hopefully, you know, everything kind of just goes back to normal. Uh, but I said that after the COVID crisis, like, okay, it's over. Like, it's it's all going to go back to normal now. <laughs> it's like one thing leads to another leads to another. Right. So, yeah. and you well, know, that, I, think, that's, I think that the administration recognizes also the the perils of the the uh, Ukraine Russia war and inflation, and they're they're trying to put in place an oil price cap on Russian oil in conjunction with the G seven trying to get other partners on board remains to see be seen whether this is going to work, especially you see OPEC over the weekend announcing a production cut. So this is not in a vacuum. And, you know, how much is that going to do? Um, Because remember, oil is makes its way through all of the supply chains. So that also puts Mm -hmm. Uh, upward pressure on inflation or allows it to to come down depending on what prices are doing. So uh, there's keen awareness of this also outside of the Fed and measures being taken. But again, it it remains to be seen whether that's going to help or whether it's going to backfire. Yeah. And and oil, I mean, like you said, I mean, it is like the lifeblood of factories. Like it's hard to run a bunch of factories just on batteries. Like you mostly burn oil or burn, you know, liquid natural gas, and I feel like the the current administration has um, a lot of subsidies out there and a lot of incentives for you know the fully uh, sort of transition to elect elect you know what's it called you know, electric vehicles and all that yeah the green movement and all that stuff which yeah I'm behind but at the end of the day you know is there a balance that we need to strike with domestic oil production as kind of a stopgap until we completely wean off of you know, Russian gas and Venezuelan gas and Iranian gas, which, by the way, I mean, aren't those like sanctioned countries now? And we're negotiating yeah, deals I mean, with their gas. The U.S. doesn't import, right, like even before this, like we weren't, we're not a large consumer of, of Russian energy. That's more of a European issue. So I want to be clear on that. But global energy prices do ricochet and come back to the u.s because we Mm -hmm. operate in a global economy yeah yeah i i remember reading about the um you know the fact that we only have like five percent of our um our energy imports from from russian oil but it it just so happens that you know a big chunk of the east coast does burn uh like russian oil essentially for their energy which was you know even though it's only a small sort of thing like i think we get 60 percent of our oil from from canada it's still something that like we need to restructure 
kind of the the infrastructure in order to like transition fully to electric, but it seems like it's kind of a long ways out. And I'm just curious if we're going to have more domestic production of oil or if you're hearing anything about that over in Washington, D.C., or is it pretty staunchly like we're not going to do that? We're going fully nuclear. or Is that kind of a big concept that people are talking uh, about as well? So, I mean, climate is is very central to this current administration's um, goals. And you saw that in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, um, that's the biggest piece of climate legislation that's that's passed. Um, so I think there is a huge focus on that, but there's an understanding that we can't go full blast green, that we need to pair that with traditional energy. Um, there could be an opportunity with the ban on uh, Russian energy to ramp up oil and gas in this country um, from an economic perspective. Um there, I don't. I don't have anything from the administration on that. I actually, plan to ask them about that later this week. Uh, so, so we're just doing know, some prep work. Come back to prep. me. Come back to me later this week, and I may have an answer for you. But you know, we we do know that the Keystone Pipeline was stopped from moving forward. Yeah. Um, we do know that um, there haven't been the same energy incentives, perhaps, in this administration. So, so I guess to your point, like there's an understanding we need both, but there's a greater push in this particular administration, I think, for for the green side of things. So as a guy who who doesn't really closely follow politics and all that kind of stuff, I do know the midterms are coming up. At least I know that. But um, my, my question is like kind of what is, you know, maybe some of your personal forecasts for the midterms based on kind of what the conversations are. I mean, you're a lot closer to obviously, you know, uh, you know, reporting and covering all this stuff. You're a lot closer to the pulse uh, than I am. So, so what's kind of the uh, on the table, at least for the midterms. So I think that there's still a baseline assumption that Republicans will take back the house of representatives. Um, At that point, then you're very much going to have divided government Um, And then, you know, what is that going to mean for uh, President Biden's uh, goals and getting those through Congress? Um, You know, probably more logjam unless there's great compromise. That being said, uh, the fact that the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, uh, that's giving Democrats a small outside chance to retain the House. Um, So we're starting to see, you know, some snippets of that with different primaries. Um, You know, you saw that with New York, for example. So again, I think the baseline scenario is still at this point, the GOP takes the House, but we'll see if some of these issues like abortion are able to bring uh, folks out to vote if they feel strongly enough. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, super polarizing things that kind of came out. And I think we'll further galvanize or strengthen an individual uh, for, yes, I'm definitely going to vote left or vote right. And so we'll we'll definitely see. And I'm excited to hear 
uh, all the results. And it really does feel like this big, uh, it's almost like March madness or something. It's just like, there's like, you know, just a bunch of odds that are finally getting hit. And like, yeah, I, you know, I think it was a greater chance that the Republicans took the house until the Supreme court struck mm. down that law and, and that sort of changed the calculus maybe a little bit. So we'll see. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, Jennifer, if somebody wants to keep up with you and, you know, keep reading your stuff, maybe follow you on Twitter, do you have any social handles that you could shout out real quick or what your column sure. is? Yeah, I am on Twitter at Jenniferisms. <laughs> I love that. So, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter there. And I'm on uh, Instagram uh, at Jennifer Tunes. I do music on the side, so it's more musical, I guess, on on Insta than on Twitter. But yeah, if you want, if you want the the crypto fed DC scoop, then find me on Twitter. Yep, I'm following you right now. I love it. I mean, that's that's a great one, Jenniferisms. I'm just, <laughs> Thank you. And it, since 2010, I was going to say that's a that's a long time. Um, or like that's one of those sort of uh, Twitter handles that you must have been around right when it really came out in order to get such a unique handle. <laughs> I, I guess so. Oh no, don't age me. <laughs> no, I'm not. You're just an early adopter. I've you been know? an early adopter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess so. All right. So I, I love it. I appreciate you dropping the social handles and the Yahoo Finance is, uh, you know, basically it's pretty easy, right? You just go to yahoofinance.com or finance.yahoo. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Finance.yahoo.com. And uh, yeah, you can find my insights and many of my colleagues as well. Love it. And before I let you go, I just got a couple more questions. And I'm just curious, like if we just round out the whole, you know, regulation conversation we've been having today, which areas do you think are going to be positively regulated? And, and then maybe which ones will be more negatively regulated? And, and then is there any kind of rationale there? I was going to say, it's, it's kind of tough to say at this point, because mm -hmm. it's tough to figure out what's going to pass Congress. Um, and, and as far as the agencies and the administration are concerned, you know, they're, I think, more looking to lawmakers on this. They would prefer to have uh, legislation rather than uh, rule writing themselves. Yeah, and I like that. There are, there are a number of bills in Congress right now, um, some of them very sprawling, like Senators uh, Gillibrand and Lummis's bill, which looks at the entire crypto space. Uh, some are a bit more narrow, uh, like legislation I previously noted that's being considered in the House Financial Services Committee to police stable coins. And, you know, each piece of legislation has its pros and cons. But I think we're very much at the beginning of the process here and that a lot of this is going to be rewritten. So I think there's encouragement uh, for more transparency and rules of the road from the industry. But I think that these rules are still being honed in terms of their details. And the devil is very much going to be in the details. And of course, the industry is going to lobby as hard as possible for the details that they want. <laughs> so I, I, I can't say whether it's going to be positive or negative. I think that everyone's encouraged at this point. It seems positive. People want to make this work. But again, we'll see what the final results are going to be. Yeah. And, and I just, I hope that they're able to have a balanced approach. I mean, there's, there's clearly bad actors, right. In the space, but you know, there's bad actors in every industry. It's like technology is agnostic. So I hope they nail this the idea that, you know, it's an impact, you know, blockchain is an empowering technology in the same way the internet was and, and good people do great things with technology. And so there's a lot to, uh, 
There's a lot yeah, of fire here. I think, here I think that, that both Secretary Yellen and SEC Chair Gensler have said that technology neutral, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. No, I like that. But, you know, there there have been a lot of like hacks, right? Like we have seen that. And so that is something that's like, that's really on the industry maybe in order to have cleaner, you know, technology, better code audits, more user-friendly. Um, but do you have any kind of like hot takes on on all these hacks that have happened? So I think the latest I would say is in terms of the government is that the FBI has been warning about um, DeFi specifically, and they're recommending that DeFi platforms use real-time analytics, test code, try to identify vulnerabilities and yeah. against these hacks. So, so yes, they are telling the industry, hey, you need to make sure that things are secure. At the same time, they're also telling investors, you need to be able to do your due diligence and your research on these DeFi platforms. And I think that goes for all of crypto as well. And um, they are asking or urging um, investors to look for independent audits of platforms underlying code to identify any vulnerabilities before investing there. But again, it's just like anything else. If you're going to research, if you're going to invest in a stock, you want to research that stock. You want to understand what that company is about, how it's generating its revenue. So, you know, you need to look at the different cryptocurrencies or the different platforms or whatever it is that you're going to invest in in the crypto space and really understand what the risks are, what the vulnerabilities are, and, you know, not be willing or only invest what you can afford to lose. Yeah, understand that you know this is an extremely volatile space with no guarantees, that's for sure. Right. And you know this kind of dovetails into a question uh, that we like to ask every every guest that comes on on the show, but it's just as simple as this. It's like if this was the very first podcast that somebody was listening to that had anything to do with cryptocurrency, what would be like one or two things that you'd love to leave them with? So I want them to understand that if they're interested in investing in crypto, it's still a very new asset class. It's very volatile and speculative. It is a virtual asset that has no intrinsic value. It's not like a stock that trades on a company's earnings or cash flows. Its value depends on what the next person is willing to pay for it. And as we've spoken about, it's not fully regulated yet. So there aren't as many investors to help stabilize these wild swings and of course, not as many investor protections. So anyone investing in it should go into it with eyes wide open and they should be willing to lose what they put in. Yeah, I think that's a great note. Um, now, you, you talk to a lot of companies, a lot of other people in this space. Kind of two last questions for you, but I'll hit you one after the other. Um, of all the uh, companies that you kind of see floating around the crypto space, which one do you think is fair to say is having the largest impact uh, on the furtherance of our industry? I don't know if it's any one company per se. I will say the exchanges and the first movers like Binance, Coinbase, FTX, you know, they're really setting the stage here. Um, you know, who knows how things will evolve, right? You look back at the internet era with AOL and it was a strong stalwart at the time. Things have evolved and now Google is king, right? So these are the first movers remains to be seen. And they're certainly shaping things, laying the groundwork remains to be seen how much staying power there is. 
Certainly, uh, stablecoin issuers, I think USDC Circle, also has uh, the potential for shaping and staying power there, the way they've structured things, the alliances they have with the government, the transparency they've created. I think as far as individuals that are at the helm of these companies, if you look at FTX, um, Sam Bankman-Fried has shown the ability to be agile and to be nimble coming out first with crypto and then moving into creating a stock app, understanding the crossover there, uh, he seems to get things. So to the extent that he's an adaptable CEO who is able to evolve, you know, they could potentially leave a, a lasting mark as well. Yeah, no, I think that's very, very true. And the last question is, um, of all the other people that you may have, you know, interacted with or interviewed or you know, come across, has there been any one individual, and you might have just alluded to him, but uh, any one individual who's, you know, impressed you the most out of all the crypto people? Yeah, so I think Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, he he's, he's an interesting person, very smart, uh, very much been on the cutting edge, agile, nimble, He's got in with with regulators, right? He's he's gotten in with the uh, CFTC to talk about the potential for new crypto settlement programs and these sorts of things. Um, and so, yeah, I think he's he's one to watch. But there's also another person who I really admire, um, especially being a female. I like what she's doing. Her name's Morgan McKenney. And um, she may not be famous, but I think she's been bold in what she's doing and she's wanted to watch. So she was Citigroup's head of consumer banking under city CEO Jan Frazier. And now she's CEO of a company called Provenance Blockchain. And she's looking at blockchain and trying to create solutions for banks and their customers. Things like extracting costs from the mortgage underwriting process to lower mortgage rates for consumers. She's trying to think of real world solutions um, that can apply to everyday banking. And that, I think, is where the true value of blockchain and crypto comes into play. Amazing. I'm looking her up right now and I hopefully could bring her on the show one day to learn about that because that stuff sounds super interesting. Real world assets and I uh, love it. Yeah, she's great. Awesome. Well, Jennifer, thank you so, so much for spending the whole hour with us today on the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, we already got your handles and your website shouted out here. So we're excited to hopefully uh, bring some more listeners and uh, viewers over to uh, Yahoo Finance. Thank you so much, Bryce. I so appreciate it. Yep. Take care. Thanks. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.